Hi everyone and welcome back to Murder in the North. I'm your co-host Zach. And I'm Kelby. And this week Kelby's going to be presenting her case. Just before we get into the episode for this week, I just want to preface by telling everyone that this is a really heavy and sensitive subject. Um, This episode does talk a lot about children, um, and I understand that can be really difficult for some people, so I just wanted to preface before I get into it, just to let everyone know. This will be the only trigger warning throughout the episode. So our case sources this week are CanadianCRC.com, Murderpedia, CBC News, and EV Magazine. Our case takes place in Nova Scotia and is about Lila Gladys Young. Lila Gladys Young was born in 1899 in East Chester, Nova Scotia. Lila was the daughter of religious parents and at 26 years old she met William Peach Young, who was an unordained Seventh-day Adventist minister. The couple married and soon after expected their first of five children. The Youngs moved to Chicago where William was licensed as a chiropractor in December of 1927. Two months after this, in 1928, the family moved back to Nova Scotia where they opened a maternity house named the Life and Health Sanitarium in East Chester, just 40 miles southwest of Halifax. Lila had recently graduated from the National School of Obstetrics and Midwifery, so Lila became a professional midwife and managing director at their new maternity home, with William acting as the superintendent. This establishment was promoted as a safe space where unwed women could give birth. The couple created a newspaper ad that read, Ideal Maternity Home, Mother Refuge, also Department for Girls, No Publicity, Infants Home in Connections. This ad promised to shield expectant mothers from gossip and also said that every service had its price. The Life and Health Sanitarium was soon re-christianed to the Ideal Maternity Home and Sanitarium. So that was just the new name. Okay. Um, It was called Ideal because they offered the ideal solution. Unwed mothers-to-be could go on vacation, give birth, and return home without a baby and with their reputations intact. Married women seeking refuge at this establishment paid, on average, $75 for each delivery, and that included two weeks of recovery in the early stages of this business. However, if a woman was unwed, they faced a higher price of around $100 to $200 in advance for room and board, delivery of the child, as well as arranging adoptions. The couple also charged $12 for diapers and supplies, plus $300 to cover the youngs having to hold the babies between delivery and adoption. Now, if the baby died, the mother was also charged $20 for a funeral, which was performed by the youngs' handyman, which costed $0.50 per corpse. This was because during this time, abortion and birth control were illegal, and unmarried women who got pregnant were often disowned by their families. There was also no government support for unwed mothers or community support during this time. So, like I mentioned, they set up adoptions, but they also did, um, like, they conducted abortions as well, which were also illegal during the time, but that was another service that they offered. Oh, okay, and then that was probably a little bit of a higher cost because it was obviously illegal at the time. Right, and if these patients also did not have the money to pay the youngs, um, the patients were sometimes allowed to work off their debts at the home, which provided the family with unpaid domestic help. So since this is actually like quite a bit of money back in this time, it was kind of unrealistic to think that every single person using this facility would would have all of these funds available. So they would kind of just put them to work. Right. And I read some articles too that mentioned that sometimes this could take as much or as long as 18 months. Yeah. 
So I think it's also worth mentioning that both William and Lila called themselves doctors, even though neither of them were. Also, during this time, um, like I said, William was a chiropractor, and during this time, like in the 1900s, chiropractors weren't recognized as actual doctors. And a lot of times when people were chiropractors, they actually were convicted and sent to jail for felonies and things like that. I know it, it's just so weird. That to, makes like, no sense. Right. Because they weren't really seen as part of like the medical association as they are now. Oh, okay. So even to this day, there's quite a lot of speculation about whether or not like chiropractic, like actual, like the... If they're actual Like doctors. if the services actually work or not. Huh. Yeah. So yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting how, like, they were calling themselves doctors and, like, billing people as doctors when that's not something that they went to school for at all. And they're not qualified to do that. Yeah, like, if anyone found out about it, like, they could get fraud charges like that. But at the same time, who would really report something like this? You know what I mean? I guess because they're going to an illegal service and they're paying for it. Right. So, yeah, you're not really going to kind of turn yourself in and say, by the way, I went and paid for this and they're saying this. Yeah. So, Lila would actually deliver the babies herself while William would kneel at the bedside in prayer because they're both religious. They like their the name was rechristianed. So, they were very much religious based. So, okay. they would just see this as like a way to like birth a healthy child. Uh, Some patients complained of Lila's rough, even brutal handling. They said she was physically immense, an overwhelming presence and power, and would strike fear into people. So, during World War II, business picked up for the Youngs, and because nearby Halifax was a major port, serving as the point of departure for convoys crossing the North Atlantic to England, um, and because many of these ships did not successfully complete the journey, many women were left as unmarried or widowed expected mothers. During this time, the Youngs' establishment seemed to be the only place that could provide support for these expecting mothers. So, like, this, like, it would have just started booming for them, like, yeah, and it's, I mean, I'll get into it later, but you'll see. Um, so, over the next few years, there were many changes within, like, the maternity home, some that William completed himself. With the home growing its reputation and with the number of births and adoptions that it had, they were increasing each year. Um, and between the years 1928 to 1935, Lila reported 148 births and 12 infant deaths at the home, which equals 8.1%. However, that 8.1% is quite high um, in comparison to Nova Scotia's infant mortality rate, which is 3.1% on average. Oh my goodness. So they had a pretty high infant mortality rate there. Yeah, and like, to think like, and possibly if they were actual doctors maybe it wouldn't have been so high right and there was actually a lot of people that were there who were like in who were experiencing a lot of pain because they were like going through childbirth and they had no medication on hand (laughs) because realistically they would have no way they would have no way to get it so there was actually a story and i'm going to kind of talk about a little bit later but um of an individual who went to them to like use their services and they ended up dying because they had an infection and William and Lila didn't have the medication to treat the infection like the antibiotics and like I guess you'll you said you'll get into that later 
Yeah, so on March 4th, 1936, Lila and William would be charged with two counts of manslaughter from the death of a mother, Eva Nyforth, which was actually the person I was talking about, okay. and her newborn child, allegedly caused by negligence and unsanitary conditions at the home. However, both William and Lila were found not guilty. What? So from what I found, what happened was um, Walter, Eva's spouse, um, like went to go see her and stuff. And at this time, they found out that the baby didn't make it and Eva wasn't doing well Mm -hmm. because of her infection. Yeah. So William actually reached out to Walter to let him know, hey, Eva's not doing well. Also, your baby's dead. So you should come and see her because it might be her last time you see her. And when he got there, he was like, you have an infection. Like, why has no one gave you medication? And William got really offended because it, to him, he's like a doctor and like, this is his establishment. And when Walter said, why haven't you called any doctors? William said, I am a doctor. And he was like, well, why haven't you given her any like medication for her infection? And then he actually was brought out of the room, like by William, Walter was, handed the bill for his deceased child and said, visiting hours are now over. What? You need to leave. Oh my And then goodness. Eva died. Yeah. Like, I don't understand how they essentially dodged two manslaughter charges on this. Yeah, I know. And it's... But, like, as you kind of get into the case, you realize... Because a lot of people that went there, they went there for a reason. And in their eyes, this was, like, the best place. Mm -hmm. So... But in May of 1936, um, when they were found guilty, the RCMP adopted a policy of investigating each reported death at the home in years to come. But I'll kind of get into that into that a little bit later. I was going to say, because, like, yeah, they were open for a little while, like, and with over 130, like, births there, like, how does this not, like, how do they not be investigated at some point? Right. I don't know if it's just me too, but I found that 148 births was kind of low. I was thinking that too. But I when guess, I like, I guess around this time, like, mm-hmm. people that are trying to hide their pregnancies, like, maybe it is a little high. I guess it's a different Well, I also time. don't think their documenting was that great. <laughs> True. <laughs> their filing system was a little <laughs> out of it. Anyways, so Lila and William went back to their life at the sanitarium um, after pleading not guilty, still providing services as they did before. And in 1939, the Youngs paid off their mortgage on the maternity home and then built their own home which can like which was a three-story house containing nine bedrooms three bathrooms a den dining room living room and kitchen and over the next six years they bought new cars and land and continued to add to their assets by 1943 the youngs were well on their way to wealth after several additions and expansions the cottage they started with was now a huge structure with 54 rooms 14 bathrooms multiple nurseries and they were mortgage-free I, I don't know if you would know this, but it is like, is that still building? Is that building still up? We'll get there. We will get there. Oh my goodness. Also, I think I said it was a house. Sorry. Um, it, it was a cottage. No, you did say it was a cottage. Okay. Um, now, following the RCMP's investigation, the, R- the RCMP ran into a huge issue when they found out just how many deaths actually went unreported. Oh no. So, the handyman, the one that did the like yeah, the funerals yeah. and everything for the deceased child or children um glenn would later admit to burying 100 to 125 babies in a field owned by lila's parents near fox point 
Glenn, how do you not report this? Glenn went on to say that they would bury the baby side by side so it was easy to count just how many there were. Glenn told authorities that in a typical case, an unnamed infant would be kept in the young shed for up to five days, covered by a box before it was driven to Fox Point for its burial. Oh my god. It was discovered later that Lila and William would purposefully starve unmarketable babies to death by feeding them only water and molasses. And with this diet, most babies would only survive up to two weeks. The couple would determine unmarketable babies by the infant's skin tone, serious illnesses, or if the infant had any deformities. These babies would be disposed of in a wooden grocery box, typically used for dairy, which is where the term butterbox babies derived from. Some babies were also disposed of by sea or even burned in the home's furnace. I legit have, like, I'm speechless right now. This is, oh my god. Now, although the youngs collected money from these mothers using the services at the facility, most of their income actually came from adoptive parents. The youngs would sell babies to adoptive parents for up to $10,000 and would then tell the birth mother that their baby had actually died and that the youngs and then the youngs would charge the mother for a baby's funeral that wasn't actually taking place. What? Yeah. Could you imagine being that mom though, like grieving the loss of your child and it's actually alive, it's just being sold? Seriously. So I found some like numbers kind of of what they charged over the years. So babies in the 1920s sold for $1,000 each. And in the 1930s, the price went up to a little bit, or the price went up a bit to $5,000 per infant. So oh, quite a bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> and by this time it was like $10,000. So. And w- sorry, what time was like this that it was 10,000? This was like kind of coming up to the 1940s. So in like the matter of like, and they opened in 1928. So in the time of like almost 20 years, they put the price up almost $10,000. It's, yeah. I'll kind of get into a little bit more about how, to, like how much they made. But um, like, keep in mind during this time, the average income was around $8 a week. And they're charging 10000 So, but they also were selling it to pretty wealthy people like politicians and, and like people who were like of high status. Okay. From anywhere, like not just within Canada, U.S., whoever would buy them okay and most of the people who were like coming to be adoptive parents would be required to have like references and proof of income but they didn't care they didn't really care where the baby went as long as they got the money which honestly would you expect anything less hearing how they were burning babies yeah like hearing some of the stuff like yeah like i honestly don't know how they can like how they could ethically do this and they have five children of their own keep that in mind as well i totally forgot about yeah, that yeah i couldn't find anything on them during the research but at the same time it didn't really revolve around them like it was their parents yeah um so anyways with the average income being eight dollars a week most mothers could not afford to pay all these expenses the youngs had so like i said they would work up to 18 months yeah um and with the growth of their business they would often increase their prices from like 75 dollars a day or the 100 to 200 to 300 to 800 dollars just for services that that they deliver to like unwed mothers or people utilizing their services and like they're pretty much setting them up for failure at that point just so they get almost free free labor labor out of it yeah so it was also mentioned that sometimes it says sometimes but i would say like more often than not 
the youngs would separate or create siblings to meet the desire of outside customers looking to purchase the babies. The youngs would also illegally provide babies of any background, so they would tell adoptive parents that the baby they're adopting is Jewish or Christian, even though the baby may not have been. Oh my goodness. And this is because in the U.S., adoption um, across religions was not allowed. So you could not adopt a Christian baby if you were Jewish. Okay. Your baby had to be Jewish. So they would just even, say like, oh, you're Jewish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're, so we they're have a there. Jewish baby for you, even though the baby may not be Jewish. Wow. Yes. So, elaborate contracts were also signed by the unwed mothers, giving William the power of attorney and legal authority over their babies and their adoptions. And if not signed within 14 days of the birth, they were charged an additional $30. And by the time the girls left the home, their bills were often exceeding $300. And in some cases, the moms might have changed their mind and said, actually, I want to keep my baby instead of like putting it for adoption. Like, Lila and William would charge them $10,000 to take back their baby. What? And say, well, we already have, like, an adoption set up, so you need to pay us for this. So, on top of everything else that they've paid for, now they have to pay to get their baby back if they did decide to keep it. And, like, especially, like you mentioned, it's $8 a week as an average income then. Like, right. That is realistically almost decades of their life yeah. just to keep that baby at that point. So, it's estimated that between... 400 to 600 babies died at the home while at least another thousand survived and were adopted it went on to say that even the babies who survived often suffered from ailments caused by unsanitary conditions and lack of care within the maternity home oh my yeah i can't imagine that they had the best care i mean they didn't have medication and like first aid supplies yeah um, between 1937 and 1947, Lila and William banked at least $3.5 million from the adoptions that took place. And by this time in the 1940s, they increased the price of each baby to, like I mentioned, $10,000. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> so pediatricians and mothers came forward to testify against the youngs. They noted that the home was overcrowded and deadly, one mother admitted that her baby died after receiving no medical attention and was buried in a butter box. The same mother admitted that the youngs coerced her into posing as a nurse during a health department inspection. Another woman opened up about lying on adoption forms saying that her child was Jewish to cater to the Jewish adoptive parents that the house served. So they were still getting, like, like you mentioned, they would still have, like, the health department come in. And they had fake moms. Well, like, the moms that were there. They had, like, fake nurses. Yeah, pose as these individuals. But they also were blackmailing them. How are they still open if the... Like, if this is illegal? So, the, the Youngs lost their license, and the ideal maternity home was ordered to be shut down in 1945, in November. So they almost went 20 years. However... Oh, no. They kept running their establishment illegally. But by the next spring, they were convicted on eight counts, which included practicing without a license and violation of the newly created Maternity Board Housing Act. Because after they found out about this establishment, they created a lot more laws. For sure. um, To stop this from happening. But obviously, they didn't care. They still continued it. Um, following the trial, the Youngs developed serious financial problems. Their reputation hurt their business, their profits dwindled, and they were now in debt. 
bankrupt, they left Eastchester um, as they were when they arrived 30 years earlier. Two of their five children moved to Sudbury, Ontario, one to the U.S., and two remained in Nova Scotia. The home was destroyed by fire in 1962. It was suspected that it was arson. The house was to be converted into a resort hotel, but this did not happen. William died in 1962 from cancer, and Lila died of leukemia in 1967. Lila was buried in the same cemetery as the babies, which that just kind of doesn't sit right with me when I read that. No, me neither. So the Youngs not only deliberately killed hundreds of babies, but they also inflicted decades of pain and separation on mothers and children. Um, As I mentioned, Canadian laws were re-examined and updated to deter others from running such operations that the Youngs did. For sure. But as we know, like in today, today's day and age, illegal trades and human trafficking is still a big issue that's happening. Yeah. I also think it's important to reflect on the mothers and like the survivors of these, of this home. So like the mothers who grieve the loss of their children when in actuality their baby was alive yeah um, and sold to adoptive parents and you know even the moms who lost their babies because they were burned in the furnace or they had a deformity so they were starved to death and i like i wish almost at that point like there was something put into place that they would be able to like bring those mothers back with the child right yeah, and a lot of children were brought up not knowing their true family lineage because they were told that they were Jewish and that might not have been the case. Some of them might have had siblings that were separated at birth that they may not know of. And by this time, a lot of the children, they might be older and their parents may not be here. They might be dead. They might be older. So I've, I heard, like, I've heard from a few different sources that there used to be a website to help find the survivors, like, bring them back to their families but i haven't been lucky to find that source like i keep looking but every time i click on it it keeps saying error so i'm not sure if it's been taken down or if it's not like up anymore but that was something that i did find um i wonder if that's almost kind of like nowadays like ancestry.com yeah that like you can use your dna DNA. to kind of find your like i guess kind of like your family's history and your ancestors right because we've come so far since 1930s right but with all that being said i do think it is really important to like i said commemorate the victims and the survivors of this because this is a very sad case a very heavy case especially since they don't actually know how many babies actually died that's oh my god like yeah that's i legit don't know what to say right now (laughs) like yeah and i feel like they like when they went to trial it just they weren't convicted of manslaughter do you know what i mean it was like they obviously did it yeah and they continued to do it they opened up a new home so that just kind of showed how much remorse they didn't have seriously it was all about the money and even 3.5 million dollars is so much money where did this money go yeah i highly doubt that all that money was lost in the fact that they were claiming bankruptcy but like yeah they had 3.5 million dollars like maybe within the business aspect of it but like Mm -hmm. true personally they could have probably cashed that they could have hit it somewhere right cash yeah but anyways that is the end of our episode um if you made it to the end thank you so much for listening
Be sure to follow our Instagram at Murder in the North Podcast as well as our TikTok at Murder in the North Podcast. We post clips from each of our episodes just to kind of uh, give a little teaser towards what you're going to be seeing. Yeah. And we'd love if you could rate our podcast and share it with another true crime fan to help us grow our little fam. We're Every week we're, we're gaining listeners and it's super exciting for us. We really enjoy doing this. So even one little share could really help us and we would really appreciate it. We also have our case suggestion linked on our Instagram. If you have a specific case you want us to talk about, you can find it there. But we will see you next Tuesday. Stay safe.